Hello, and welcome to We Live for Saturday, your favorite college football podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike, and with me as always is your other co-host, John. John, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing all right. Had a pretty eventful day, just talking with lenders and real estate agents, all that kind of stuff. Looking to... Oh, fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lots of fun. Lots of fun talking all those numbers, all that money, all the details all that kind of stuff it's it's it is fun though it is it's good it's exciting moving towards that direction and moving moving back to minnesota back home after spending uh, a large large portion of my life out here on the east coast in the new york city area so yeah it'll be good yeah that's awesome man i am also excited for you to make your return to the crown jewel of the upper midwest minneapolis it is the north star state it's you know la du nord it's beautiful i miss her there you go look at you i like it early in the podcast john feeling oh, spicy like that i mean look man you know you, you you took the boy out of minnesota but you can't take the minnesota out of the boy that's for sure no sir All right. Well, we have a few items to talk about. This is a review podcast, so this will continue our series of uh, reviewing Big Ten teams. We did a few teams last week in uh, Indiana, Michigan, um, Iowa, and Wisconsin. This week, we are going to cut back and do three teams because that ended up being a little bit of a long podcast for everyone. And as much as we love listening to ourselves talk, it got a little little lengthy. So we're going to try to cut it down this time well, we had fun doing uh, it you know and, and but it's a little fun. it's just a little long you know i think for for most listeners and so i think to cut it down a little bit will, will hopefully help a little and you know more content for us later exactly so we'll do three teams per episode now so that should cut down on how long the episode is and we can get you know we'll continue to get really in depth on all these teams today we are tonight we are doing nebraska washington and minnesota but before we get into that John, let's talk. There was a there was a big announcement in the college football world that's kind of that's kind of sending reverberations and has a lot of people talking a lot about what the implications are. Yeah, a lot of people are really nervous. A lot of people, you know, I mean, this just keeps going along with realignment, how this all started back when uh, Oklahoma and Texas moved. Yeah. Well, first, let's tell the people what we're talking about. Yes, we are talking about the Big Ten SEC Advisory Committee or board or whatever they're calling it. Um, And how that's basically this seems to be and a lot of people are taking it this way. Most people are uh, kind of the first step in the direction of the quote unquote power to moving away from the NCAA, um, which I don't think is really surprising to anybody who's been following this kind of stuff. Um, you know, like I said, it's kind of all kicked off in a way with realignment uh, when Oklahoma and Texas went to the SEC and the Big Ten made its moves all, you know, so on and so forth. But now you're seeing um, before, you know, you saw the G5 conferences kind of, uh, I guess relegated to you know they they were just looked at I guess like uh, not I get uh, on the same level of the Power Five, understandably so for a lot of reasons. Um, but now you're seeing former power conferences or what may soon be former power conferences like the ACC and the Big Twelve um, also uh, you know being dropped down a level and they're going to suffer. Um, especially if the Big Ten and the SEC make all the moves, and especially if realignment continues to go the way it's been going, 
and uh, more teams drop if the ACC inevitably just disappears. Um, it seems to be already the power two, but the power two will continue to make decisions pretty much for everybody at this point. That's where it looks like it's going. Yeah, it's quite an about face from the days of the uh, Alliance a few years back where the Big Ten and the Pac-12. The ACC. And, yeah, we're going to all come together and resist this realignment that was allegedly driven by the SEC. I would say that the alignment realignment's been driven by the networks and that there was probably no stopping it once they decided that's what they yeah. wanted. I totally agree. I mean, I know you made a... I, I, I've always been a huge, you know, and I'll admit it, an SEC hater. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm totally fine with saying that. Um, come at me, bring it. I don't care. Um, but you heard him people, <laughs> but I definitely, uh, never saw, I guess like the big 10, you know, joining the dark side. Um, I'm sure they would say the same thing about, about us, but the way I see it, you know, uh, we made a, you and I made a, or you made a comment, I guess, about how the SEC is the death star, you know, like the, the Imperials and star Wars and, and, you know, I always figured, you know, the big 10 and every other conference was, you know, was the rebellion, but it looks like, uh, looks like part of the the rebellion is now joined sides with the Imperials and we're all just taking over the galaxy. So no, my comment on Twitter is that this is like, if this were game of Thrones, this is the Tyrells and the Lannisters getting together and putting all that money together, all that money and power, bringing it together, consolidating it. Um, I agree, John, it'll be interesting. I don't know if it'll be a complete break off. Like there are things the NCA is good for, right? Like they administer the NCAA basketball tournament. They do, you know, compliance stuff laughably poorly. You know, they don't do a great job of it, but, you know, they do they do some things. Right. So it might be in the Big Ten and SEC's best interest to keep the NCAA around in some form, just maybe a diminished form as far as power goes. I can see that happening because you're absolutely right. Um, I think that they're the IC or the NCAA um, still serves a purpose. Just I think in regards to football, uh, it should be, in my opinion, a little bit diminished coming, you know, looking at the big 10 and the SEC and, and frankly, even the other conferences, I, I feel like it's just, it's caused, too many issues. It's toothless. The conferences don't respect the NCAA. And frankly, the NCAA hasn't hasn't really done anything recently to deserve that. They continue. They're in. I know they're in a lot of uh, there's a ton of different lawsuits against them. It just seems to be more of a problem than it is, uh, um, you know, any kind of help. So, uh, yeah, I am. But I'm no, not a lawyer. I am not an expert on any of this. This is just like the bits and pieces I've heard, I've read, things like that. Um, you know, my opinion is I, I'm not really, I don't think I, I feel good or bad about it. I'm not really leaning towards one way or another. I think in regards to football, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I also don't want to see some of these uh, these non-revenue sports um, uh, go by the wayside either. That doesn't make me happy at all no and we'll have to see if that's you know that's um a consequence of all this you know realignment all this player empowerment era and all that kind of stuff you know there are going to be there are going to be you know as much as we love the good things about it, and i think the sport is moving in the right direction you know there are going to be negative aspects of it too and there are and we're seeing them kind of rear their ugly head with realignment 
and with different kinds of red tape preventing change happening as quickly as we want it to. Um, you know, my question is, John, does this eventually, my hope, I guess, more than question, is that this eventually leads to the Big Ten and the SEC saying, hey, we're going to pay the players directly and we're going to have a collective bargaining agreement like adults and we're going to treat the players as employees because they're generating hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars in revenue. And, you know, that that's going to be that that will be the game changer. And then at that point, the other conferences will have to follow suit, but they won't have as much money. So my my hope is that the that they do that because I do want to see the players get paid. My fear is that if that happens, do the Big Ten and the SEC take all of the recruits because nobody wants to play in a lesser league anymore because there's not as much money in it? Well, which is kind of, you know, it's funny you bring that up because we just talked about, I think, in a, a few podcasts ago about how we were happy about the the 12-team playoff system because those four teams that continued to make, you know, four to five, I should say, maybe, um, that continue to make it into the Four, five, six, the same teams that we saw every exactly. year, more or less. And they were yeah. the ones getting all the recruits. They were monopolizing. Yes. And so mm-hmm. is this just going to be another version of that to to a degree? Um, and I could absolutely see that. I, I think at this point in time, let's say there is no more realignment, even if it cut off right now and this is where we're sitting for who knows however how long, but this is where it's at. It's the perception I have to believe from young kids and young recruits is that that's still going to be the belief that if you're not in the the SEC or the Big Ten, you're just not going to be at the highest level. And that's where you want to be. And so I think it's already there. I mean, that's been hurting Texas in recruiting for Mm -hmm. years that they couldn't say that they were playing at the highest level. They were saying that they were playing at a lesser level, which I think is kind of unfair in the in the in the power five era. I think that's kind of unfair. In the Power 2 era, it might be kind of fair because the resources and the money is just going to be so much bigger at these Big Ten and SEC schools that it's just going to dwarf, you know, what revenue most, uh, you know, you can make at, at, at most schools. Now, there, there are schools in other conferences that are always going to make a ton of money and be huge products like Florida State, Clemson, Notre Dame. But the question is, how long will it be before we see those schools try to make it into the Big Ten or SEC? Well, and I think that is an inevitability. I know FSU has really made no, uh, they've not tried to hide it, that they want to be. No, they yeah, have not. Like they want to be, in, yeah, they're lean, from what I'm hearing, they want to be in the Big Ten, but also I'm sure they would take the SEC, whatever they want out. Either way, they've made it very clear. Um, and there are other pro- there's other programs too, you know the the what is it the the magnificent seven or whatever in in the ACC. So there's UNC, there's Clemson, there's there's other programs that have made it clear to some to varying degrees that they want out of the ACC agreement from to nineteen or to to uh, two thousand thirty six, um, which I can't blame them. the The Granite Rights deal is is I don't think they saw they foresaw what was going to happen, obviously, and they thought it seemed like a good deal at the time. And it's just not anymore. But now you're looking at that and there's going to be I feel like the ACC is just on um, it's on a respirator right now. It's 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 inevitably going to fall apart. But and you're seeing what we just saw with the uh, the Big Ten and and the SEC make in which, again, you brought up these um, these TV uh, 
executives and, and that are really making all of the money move here. And and you saw Fox, you saw ESPN um, come together, and and now they're having talks. And and yeah. now you're seeing, and and of course these other programs in the ACC want to get a part, want to become a part of that. Now the wild card in all of this, and obviously we could do a whole episode on this, but and I and we don't need to go into it too much, but. Yeah, we'll get off this soon, yes, we promise. But like I I feel like in some ways, and this may seem a little strange, and I'm sure there's there would be some backlash on all of this, but I feel like even now, some of those ACC schools, the the brands, the top brands that will inevitably end up in the Big Ten or in the SEC, are even in a better position right now than Notre Dame. Notre Dame is not a part of this discussion. And no, and they're not to me. You're looking at, you know, how NBC has made it clear that they want more Big Ten Notre Dame games on TV because it's proven to be beneficial for the network. Yeah, but Jillian people yeah. watch. So I think this is just another ploy to inevitably push Notre Dame into a position where the, their TV rights deal comes up again in, in 2029. And inevitably, I think this is the last breath of their independence because they're going to be pushed into making a decision or fall by the wayside. And sure, they'll be a brand. Everyone will recognize them. Great. But you're still not going to be a part of that power, too. And it's not this is not what I wanted, but that's what it's going to be. No. And I don't think Notre Dame is going to have a choice at some point sooner than later. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see the way the Big Ten and the SEC exercise their influence yeah. and we just don't know for sure exactly what their agenda is going to be what are they going to be able to agree on what are they going to disagree on so this is going to be really fascinating to watch and that's the reason why i know we spent a decent amount of time on this topic but this is going to be a huge huge issue going yeah. forward this uh big 10 sec advisory board so we don't know exactly where it's headed in the immediate future we think we know where it's headed maybe long term but I'm really curious, what does it look like in the next like six months to like a year yeah. and a half? Yeah. And I think that's the best way to look at it because you can, you know, prognosticate what's going to happen five, 10, 20 years down the line. And really, no, none of us really know. Um, so just kind of. We no. don't. <laughs> we don't actually know what's going to happen in six months either. No, we don't. So, uh, no, we, but do, it we is, do not. It's going to be interesting because obviously pieces are moving. Yeah, absolutely. All right, should we move Let's on to the next it. topic? Okay, John, the Washington Huskies have a new defensive coordinator mm -hmm. with a familiar name. Steve Belichick is the new Huskies defensive coordinator. He spent the last several seasons in New England with the Patriots as both first safeties coach, then as outside linebackers coach. Um, Jed Fish foreshadowed this hire by saying he wanted to have an NFL system on D he wants a four down front with some odd front principles. Um, and now he's got that he's got an NFL guy. So John, what do you think about this hire? I mean, it could work out great. It could be okay. Or it could be terrible. Um, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I think it's, it's not a bad move. I think that, you know, with what his, uh, maybe this is the best of, of what what's out there th at this point in time. Uh, I think Belichick it was definitely looking to finally make a move and becoming a DC. He was a, a safeties coach for a while. And then a linebacker uh, inside linebackers coach, I think. Um, oh, okay. Inside linebackers. Or, my bad. I misspoke. I, I, I mean, you might be right. 
No, I think it was inside. Yeah. Anyway, he, um, so that's, you know, I think he's been looking to make a move and make a step like this. And so it's just continuing to, he's climbing the ladder and he's doing what he should do. And, and, um, I don't think it's a bad hire, like I said, but if, uh, from what I have here, just looking up on some, some stats is if they want to create more pressure, which I also know that, that, um, uh, fish said that they wanted to be able to do pressure on the quarterback. It was not their strong suit in New England when he was uh, when they were there. Um, when he was there, uh, they were ranked number four in blitz percentage, blitzing on thirty two point two percent of defensive snaps. Uh, the Patriots produced just thirty six sacks. Uh, that's the sixth fewest in the NFL. And so uh, we'll see. I, I don't know if it's going to be a big uh, a big move. I don't think it's a bad hire, but. I guess I'm not really sure how it's all going to pan out. I don't know enough about the guy. I'll be totally honest. Um, but just yeah. from, and obviously we've never seen him as a defensive coordinator, so there's no real track record there either to, to kind of base this off on. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. I mean, he's obviously got a familiar name, so he's going to be a lightning rod, right? Everyone's going to pay attention. If he does a great job, they're going to say he's a chip off the old block. And if he does a terrible job, they're going to say he's the second coming of Brian Ferentz. And like, I don't think there's gonna be a lot of in between. I think either this hire is going to really work out for Washington or it's really not going to work out. And I think that's kind of how it goes when you've had a guy who's been waiting his turn. Is he ready? Well, we're going to find out if he's ready to play in the, you know, to play ball in the yeah. Big Ten. Um, I think it's interesting that Fish wanted an NFL guy. I don't know. My, my fear always with NFL guys switching to college who are used to the mm-hmm. NFL is that they're going to have a playbook that's too yeah. big. And we've seen that before. We saw that with a guy named Jed Fish, this guy's boss, when he was at with the Minnesota Gophers and he had his bajillion page playbook that was that was indecipherable to all the players. And he had Adam Weber making line checks like apparently the offensive line couldn't do it for themselves in that system. I mean, it was bizarre. So. It was truly NFL stuff that you can't do at the college level. So hopefully Jed Fish has learned from his mistakes. And it seems like he has because he had success at Arizona. So maybe he can help Steve Belichick and go to him and be like, hey, Steve, like, I love all this stuff you're running, but we got to pare it down to like 40, 50 percent of what you ran in the NFL because there's just not enough practice time in college football to run the kind of schematic um complexity that you have in the NFL when that's your only job and guys aren't going to class and they don't have any of that stuff. And it's, it's all they do. Well, and it's just going to be either way, it's going to be a big adjustment, you know, for, for the personnel that, that has stuck around at Washington. Um, you know, they were great last year. The Huskies obviously were incredible, but this is phenomenal. You're now moving into a different conference, um, that plays a different style. You know, and so it's going to take some getting used to. There's going to be some uh, some growing pains, I think. I think Washington is capable of at some point, you know, maybe quicker, but uh, of weathering those things, maybe getting to a, a back on track. But it, it's going to take a little while. And I think it's going to take a little while for for in some ways for the Big Ten, maybe not as much, but to get used to some of the the offensive schemes of, of the West Coast out there, too. But defense is everything in the Big Ten. And if you do not have that in under control and you don't have that functioning at, at a, at a certain level, then you're just not going to succeed. Period. Doesn't, doesn't matter. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And it's uh, I always thought that Washington maybe would have a harder time than Oregon adjusting to the Big Ten just because I think Oregon is more built as a line of scrimmage team and Washington is more of a speed finesse team. And we know in the Big Ten you need spe- you need speed, but you need power too. You need both of them. Um, and you can't get away with kind of the undersized defensive linemen that you see playing that you saw playing throughout the history of the Pac-12, you know? Um, so that'll be really interesting. John, I actually am going to take a sl- I'm going to give you a slight curveball here and I'm going to give you a quote from another new Big Ten defense defensive minded coach And this. Well, in this case, he's a defensive minded coach. And I believe I believe that's his background, too. But we've got uh, Dan Lanning of Oregon said had a really interesting quote. And so I'm going to repeat this now. He said, I think at the end of the day, the Big Ten's going to have to prepare for us and what we do different for that league. Great football is great football. I'm glad to be in one of the two conferences in college football that are elite. I'm glad to be able to go and play some of the elite teams. <laughs> I, feel like I've, Ooh. I feel like I've heard that before somewhere. It sounds it really familiar, does. doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. I think we heard it. Oh, a lot, actually. Yeah, I think we have. I think we've heard that a lot um, from a particular place, from a particular team. I think we might be covering tonight. So um, not yeah. too long ago. Yeah. We did. Not too long ago. No, we heard that. And we heard that a longer time ago from another team that we're not covering tonight, but that found out pretty quickly they were a big dog, but they weren't the biggest dog. In Penn, I'm talking. We're referring to Nebraska and Penn State, of course, respectively. Yep. But I think Oregon's case is closer to being Penn State. Yeah. Um, but the idea that you're going to walk into the Big Ten and immediately be the number one big dog in the room, and everybody else is going to have to adjust to you. I mean, I'm just saying. Teams have said that. Teams said that before. Scott Frost said that it didn't go great. Nope. Penn State said that when they entered the Big Ten, it went. It went well at times, but it wasn't what they thought it was going to yep. be. I think, look, I, and you and I have had discussions, you know, about how Oregon is is probably the best team prepared to come into the Big Ten. And I think they're going to do fine. I think they're going to be great. But I do, there will be some reality checks here, here and there that I don't. And, and I yeah. think for all of these teams from teams that aren't actually named Michigan and Ohio State or Penn State. I think they are going to find out that some of these other programs are going to be tougher outs than what they're expecting. I think what they're going to find is that the grind, the physical, sheer physical grind of playing against Big Ten quality offensive and defensive lines every single week is a challenge unlike anything they've seen in the Pac-12. The Pac-12 was great last year. We're not knocking the Pac-12. Let's be clear. I know they were awesome. They had a lot of ranked teams. They had a phenomenal year. I'm sad the Pac-12 is gone. But the Pac- you could also play a 265 or 70-pound defensive tackle in the Pac-12 and get away with it, like we saw Washington do at times mm-hmm. last season. And that's not going to fly in the Big Ten. You're going to get run over. Yep. So I think I think Oregon's ready for the Big Ten. I think Oregon's going to be really tough. But the idea that Oregon is immediately going to be the superior of like a Michigan or Ohio State or or a Penn State, 
I don't think that's a guarantee at all. I think they'll be in the mix. I think they'll be one of the best teams for sure. I think Oregon will be a very, very good team. They have a nice quarterback coming in transfer, Dylan Gabriel. Like they've got some good pieces set up to make a run next year. But you're not Ohio State yet. You're not Michigan yet. No. Not yet. Nope. I agree. I I think that they'll they'll be outstanding, but I don't think that they're going to be at that elite elite level quite yet. It'll take some time, but they can get there. Especially now. I mean, now being sure. in the Big Ten with the, with more resources and all that. I mean, Dan Landing is going to have a lot more to work with here. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm just saying there's going to be a time when you're playing Iowa or something, and you're down ten seven late in the second quarter, wondering what happened. Yeah. And why this is and and why is this so hard? And you're going to be and you're going to be like, there's nowhere to go on offense. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it's not going to just be Iowa. It's going to be a lot of Big Ten teams where you have some moments where that offense is not going to just hum. You're going to have to play defense and gut out wins. Yep. Awesome. All right. Moving on to Madison. Former Tennessee Titans head coach Mike Vrabel is potentially joining Luke Fickle's Wisconsin staff in an informal role. Fickle wants him around the team as much as possible. Quote, I love Mike. I want him around as much as possible. I want to see how much he wants to be around in the spring for sure, and we'll go from there. Close quote. John, I'll say Fickle really knows how to fill out a staff and leverage his connections because he has got guys in analyst positions that you'd think, I mean, Mike Vrabel should be an NFL head coach. If he's going to be your analyst, oh man, that's that's a coup. That's There's no other way to describe yeah. it. Well, and from what I gather from that that quote is it's not just, you know, it's 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 in, he's trying to entice him to become more than just that. He doesn't want him obviously just to be around just to kind of Oh no, he wants him to be a real analyst at least, to be like a, a full-blown analyst. Obviously Vrabel's not going to take a coaching position. He's not going to yeah. do that. He's a head coach. Vrabel's yeah. a head coach. But I'm sure he wants him to take a full-time analyst position for this year and probably give like really good raw raw speeches in the yep. locker room. Because Vrabel is the guy that players want to run through a wall for. So this is, yeah, this is a big, this could be a sneaky big hire for Wisconsin. It's smart, man. I mean, Fickle Fickle is is making some real smart moves over in Madison. And it's, it's scary for the rest of us. I got to <sighs> give him credit, though. You know, he's pulling, he's pulling in some favors. And as he should, you know, I mean, what else, you know, he, he wants to keep, he wants to keep winning. He wants to make Madison or Wisconsin into a, a winning football program and working at an elite level. And so maybe he can, you know, move on for another job someday. But, you know, that's just me. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. But, you know. Yeah. Ohio State. I mean, oh, sorry. Ohio, yeah, it's I mean, Luke Fickle is Mr. Ohio State. What did he uh what did he start like 50 games for the Buckeyes or yeah, something? So. He's played, he's played in an insane amount of games yeah. for them, but yeah. So Luke fickle, Wisconsin, you get him for a while and I'm sure he'll be a great coach while he's there. Someday that guy is going to wake up as the head coach of the Columbus head coach in Columbus. Yep. And if Ryan day can't beat Michigan, that day might be sooner than later. <laughs> so let's hope. So Wisconsin fans, you're going to be cheering in the game next year. I think you're going to be cheering cheering for the Buckeyes. I think there's no question about that. I would that. be, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> right on. All right, John. So I had a an interesting social media interaction uh-huh. today. I saw that. Yeah. Um, so as we talked about in the last episode, uh, or no, we didn't talk about this in the last episode. This just broke on Twitter recently. Uh, Kirk Herbstreet, um, college football pundit, ESPN's Kirk Herbstreet, talked with five-star QB, Dylan Rayola's father, and told him that his son should go to Nebraska and talked about his Kirk Herbstreet's, his excitement for Dylan Rayola to go to Nebraska. Because he wanted Nebraska to be back. Yes, because the thing about sports pundits is what they really love is the teams that were great when they were young. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like a very sports, like college football pundity thing where they want the teams to be good that were good when they were like 16. And they want to freeze themselves in time and go back to that moment and be like, oh, yeah, I feel young again. And I swear that's I swear that's what it is, because otherwise I don't understand why Kirk Herbstreet thinks it's appropriate to go around telling college football recruits where they should go to college. Yeah. It seems like he overstepped a bit. Now, I understand, you know, there's a lot of people like there may not be any, uh, you know, official maybe legalities or whatever that things that you can point to here because he was just expressing his opinion. But he has to understand of like the clout that he carries and the influence he he has uh, over a lot of these kids. I mean, you're you're one of the you're you're the face of college football. You're the face of college yeah. football, like legitimately the face of college football, the face of ESPN. Yeah. And if someone if I was a kid and someone told me, well, I think you should go here, you're going to get all this and an opportunity, which I'm sure it wasn't just though that one sentence or like like he, he says it was there was a whole I'm sure there was a discussion, which again, I know I'm only speculating here. But yeah, you, you just can't do that, man. You're, you're in a position of power and influence that it seems like it's overstepping to me. For sure. Yeah, I I agree with you, John. You know who doesn't agree with us? Is his name? Is this, is this Josh? Jo- are we talking about Josh Pate now? We're talking about Josh uh, okay. Pate. Yeah, we're talking about well-known college football, um, college football pundit Josh Pate. So he wrote. My official statement read Herbie Rayola, Georgia. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. He put up a note, like like a note from your phone, you know, Mm -hmm. into the tweet. So I thought like you click into it and there's going to be like a whole wall of text. And Josh Pate is going to give you like a nuanced idea of why he thinks this is a good or bad thing, right? That's what you'd expect from a pundit of his stature on such a serious issue as this or, you know. So you click in to the note or you don't have to click into the note because all it says is, I don't care. I don't care. So, John, I just decided to just wade in, just put a toe in the water. And I said, oh, the guy from the establishment media doesn't care about the poor conduct of another member of that establishment media. Color me surprised. Josh Pate responded in like not even 60 seconds, like real fast, as quick as you could with a gif of himself. 
I'm not he kidding. Up. He responded with a He had what? that queued up. He had it ready to go. He had the gif of himself up and he said establishment media in quotation marks as if he wasn't. And I just and I just think it's amazing that Josh Pate thinks that he's not establishment media and then he went on to argue it with other people in the replies. So I just want to point out just 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 briefly that uh 24/7 Sports in 2015 was acquired by CBS. CBS, a pretty giant organization. And in addition, 24-7 sports personalities frequently appear as expert analysts on CBS Sports HQ, which is on television. In February 27, 24-7 sports acquired scout.com. In October of that year, they announced a partnership with Pro Football Focus to provide coverage of Division One FBS football for that website. People, Scout.com has, or 24-7 Sports, which acquired Scout.com, has a website for like every Power 5 team and some group of five teams, I believe. And Pro Football Focus does grades for like every college football game. And I'm not talking about every major college football game. I'm talking about like every college football game for like a lot of levels going down to FCS and maybe maybe not below that, but at least down to FCS, mm-hmm. right? So it's a pretty major company, all owned by CBS. And then, John, I see in early 2020, 247sports.com hired Columbus, Georgia native sportscaster Josh Pate to host a show on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel called Late Kick Live. As of November 27, 2022, the Late Kick YouTube channel had over 37 million total views. So when Josh Pate sits there with the 24-7 sports logo over his shoulder, wearing his, or, you know, with with that over his shoulder, and then says he's not corporate media, I don't know if he's talking to me or to himself. And he's not very convincing either way. Well, and I'm certain I have seen him on the sidelines with pictures, and I think there's video as well with a CBS Sports uh, official T-shirt on as well, because that's what he's there to do. He's there to work for them. Yeah, and he claims he's not corporate media. Yeah, it, it to me, dude, it's his whole shtick in which this is this is consistent with it is he's trying to come off and and uh, to the majority of your your casual fans to a degree or or those casual fans that think they're expert fans um but he's he's like he wants to come off like oh i'm just i'm just one of you i'm just one of you i'm just a regular old college football fan and i'm i wouldn't be surprised if he actually those words came out of his mouth um if you look back and dig through all of his stuff i'm sure that that has happened um, cause he, he's, you know, he wants to play that, that, you know, good old boy, good old Tennessee boy, you know, Southern thing. So, um, which is fine. And like, I don't have, yeah, it's fine. I, and that's fine. Like I, I don't have actually like a huge issue with his show. I actually have agreed with many of his takes. I disagree with some of them. I just don't like his presentation. I don't like the way it comes across sometimes. And that's maybe, that's more of a me thing. I, and but if you like him, whatever, that's fine. I don't think he's a bad resource. I think he knows what he's talking about. He knows college football. Absolutely. He's legitimate. Yeah. But 
he downplays himself in a lot of ways. That is just to me a little silly. Yeah, I have no hate if you listen to Josh. If you listen to Josh Pate and you feel like that and that's a good source for you, that's great. Like he's not my cup of tea. But the point is the the lack of self-awareness to think that he's indie media when he's as corporate backed as he is. is just really agreed. Totally. Awesome. All right, John, should we get into the reviews? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. All right. We are going to review three teams tonight and their 23, 24 football seasons. And we're going to start out, John, in Lincoln, Nebraska, with the Nebraska Cornhuskers. We want to thank our contributors for this episode. We had at Neb, N-E-B, Hype Man, at Patrick underscore Connor, and at Peter Mikester. So thank you so much to our contributors from Nebraska. They gave us amazing information. Yeah. And we could not have done this without you. So we are uh, we're really yeah, excited. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Awesome. All right, let's get right into it. What position groups were good in 2023-24? Uh, best position groups, defensive line was an agreement among all our contributors. And they had, and it's true, Nebraska had a really great defensive line last year. Uh, Peter Meister saw at Peter Meister cited Nash Huttmacher. Ty Robinson and Jamari Butler as difference makers in the D line. And also like some of the younger contributors, John, I have to agree about Nash Huttmacher. We talked about that guy all year. I mean, he was an absolute menace all year on the inside and just absolutely wrecked opposing offensive game plans. Dude is a special player. Yeah, their defensive line and I mean, their defensive play overall, like kept them in so many games and should have, you know, really, if their offense would if they would have had a halfway decent quarterback, that could have thrown the ball a little bit. They would have probably won a lot more games. But that defense was solid, and that defensive line play is finally mm-hmm. coming back. And I think the black shirts are 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 they're they're here, man. And I think Nebraska yep. Husker fans, man, you guys should be really excited about that. Defensively, you are in a great spot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, offensive line got much better as the year went on when fully healthy. Um, center through right tackle. They felt pretty good. And I thought that was interesting because right tackle included Bryce Benhart. Um, I know that Bryce Benhart's pro football focus grades got a lot better as the year went on, but he was really a liability for them in past years. And even early in this year, you know, he was a huge liability for them. So for him to get enough better and the offensive line to improve enough that people can, that, that uh, our contributors considered it a strength, I think says a lot about how much progress they made. Yeah. And I think, I mean, they had, they, to me had to grow at some point with how much they were running the ball. Um, you know, and the experience they had to get for, for creating some push and creating some holes, um, for, for not only their running backs, but their, their quarterback. It, it just, it made sense why you were able to see some improvement. Obviously I have yet to see for sure whether or not their pass pro is, is going to be any better, but they can they can run block that's for sure and you could see that uh, get much better as the season went on for sure it was great yeah absolutely and finally contributor patrick connor listed linebacker as a strength and so what's the common theme here john the defense was yep. really good i mean look at tony white oh. man tony white is legit yeah we'll get to talking about him 
And uh, Peter Meister also listed the uh, secondary as a strength and mentioned Isaac Gifford, um, that he led the team in tackles from that rover position. So that was really good and impressive. And that also they got some good play out of transfer Omar Brown at safety. Uh, which position struggled? The entire offense. Neb Hypeman said at QB, Sims was not the guy, and there wasn't much of a plan behind him this year. So the offense was molded to what they had with Harburg, who is limited as a passer, as we all know. Dude's got a big arm, but he's not overly accurate, which led to a lot of turnovers. Um, injuries obviously didn't help either. Uh, at Peter Meister said, the biggest mistake rule and company made going to the season was going all in on Jeff Sims at QB said, I've never seen a worse starting QB in my life than Sims at Nebraska last season. Close quote, John, those are strong words. I mean, and, but to be honest, man, like, cause here's like, we've seen, there's some bad quarterback play in the big 10. We saw, I mean, there's Deacon at, at yeah. Iowa, right? But yeah, it was almost comical at times with Nebraska, and I don't. And I'm not trying to to insult anybody here, and I'm sorry, Husker fans, and especially to our contributors here. I'm not trying to to disparage anything here with with being a Husker fan, but like watching and those quarterbacks, all of them, at certain points, and their ability to turn the ball over and fumble in at the most inopportune times, and in all. It, and in the silliest ways, I, I just I, yeah. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like the incompetence to protect the ball was mind boggling. And and just I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I understand if you're an, an, an inaccurate passer, but to consistently just like bobble the ball away just on, on like the, the simplest of handoffs. I, I don't know how to help you, man. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, he fully had the yips, yeah. right? I mean, com- completely. He was just way inside his own head and couldn't function as an athlete. Um, he was objectively terrible. And in hindsight, honestly, I looked at his what he looked like at Georgia Tech. I, it's hard to see what Matt Rule really saw in, in Sims. He was always a walking turnover machine. He ran the ball pretty well, but that was about it. So I would agree that if there's been a weakness that Matt Rule has had, it's been quarterback development. That's where he's lacked in previous stops, and he's been really strong pretty much everywhere else. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, to keep watching the quarterback development um, at Nebraska. Uh, Patrick Connor cited the O-line as a unit that needed to improve more than they did. So, John, the O-line has made both the struggling and succeeding list so far, which is interesting and shows you that it was pretty up and down. Um, and then, uh, they pointed out that the ride receivers were bad with the caveat that they were destroyed by attrition, which we talked about a lot on the podcast that Nebraska just ran out of wide receivers because of injuries. It was, it was a bad deal. Just a rough year all around for that. Yep. Which position coaches were successful or unsuccessful in your opinion? Uh, successful. They had Terrence Knight in the D line, Rob Dvorak at linebacker. Corey Cooper, DB, and of course, the defensive coordinator, Tony White. John, I think you were about to talk about it. You can't say enough about the job Tony White did for Nebraska's no, defense. He, he made that team what it was. He he basically uh, gave them life. Even, when they, even in the losses, man, you saw hope. And Husker fans have not had that in a long time. And I think that has sustained them through. I think it sustained them through a disappointing season and it is sustaining them now. 
obviously, there's still a lot of question marks when it comes to the offense, your offensive coordinator. Um, you know, sure, you, you've got a brand new, we'll talk more about him. I'm sure you've got a brand new five-star uh, quarterback coming in, uh, Dylan Riola. But at the same time, there's just, you don't know. You don't really know what you're going to get offensively. We'll have to wait and see. But defensively, at least you know you have that to rely on. And I think that they're going they're set up for a really good run here. Um, and they could, you know, probably win, uh, win a few more games as long as they've got that elite defense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Huttmacher is only a sophomore. I think he's back no, next great. year, isn't he? Yeah. So that'll be big for them. Um, which coaches were unsuccessful? They had Garrett McGuire at wide receiver, although at Peter Meister said that maybe he should get an incomplete um, because, you know, he, they had so many injuries. And then there's no getting around it, but um, Marcus Satterfield, QB coach and OC. Yep. And it's fair to pick on those guys, especially Satterfield. Um, I would have liked to see Nebraska with a healthy receivers room. I don't think the turnovers go away, but maybe you make more big plays and score some more points. And that's why injuries suck, folks, because you just, you know, they happen every year and sometimes they can derail a a unit. You just never get to see what they could have been. I want to, I want to, of course, you know, fault Satterfield for a lot of this, but like we talked about, um, what can you really do with a quarterback like Sims? Uh, uh, yeah, it's tough. How do you how do you scheme around that? Like you, you the most important position on the field is a head case. Um, so what do you really do with that? So I, I want to, you know, you can. It's easy to blame Satterfield, and I'm not saying he isn't. He doesn't hold any blame here, but you know, maybe with a competent quarterback, he could do a little bit more. So yeah. And Harburg wasn't much of an improvement either. He turned it over yeah, a lot. Too. Yeah. Which injuries hurt the most? Um, wide receiver Isaiah, Isaiah Garcia Castaneda and wide receiver Marcus Washington were the two biggest ones. Um, gave Urban and Ramir Johnson at running back as well. Um, you know, so they 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 were both lost. Both those running backs were lost to season-ending injuries. But the backups played decently well as running back. It wasn't as big a drop-off as it was at wide receiver. Um, what were your most pivotal games, and how did they go? Uh, Neb Hypeman said Minnesota huge game and first game under coach rule felt like a must win to get the tenure going in the right direction lost in the closing seconds of the game definitely felt like the last few years all over again and yeah that was that was a hard fought defensive Big Ten West kind of game and it was you know when you, you lose in the last play of the game that's tough yeah. um, Illinois was a big one to start a three game winning streak. So they had just lost to Michigan 45-7. So beating Illinois got them some momentum, got them back on track for the season a little bit. Wisconsin was a gut punch, played close, but turnovers once again hurt Nebraska, and you can't do that on the road with a third-string QB. And then Iowa, obviously a big rivalry, and it was an ugly game, very little offense, but Iowa's defense is a lead, of course. Nebraska didn't make the plays when they needed to win the game and actually threw a late interception to set Iowa up for the backup kicker to come in and win the game so that was those were painful too um john illinois was the game that all of our contributors cited as a big one and it was definitely a key one to get the momentum going in the right direction and then i thought this was interesting uh peter meister said the michigan state game was the pivotal game for the huskers this season we had the most momentum our program has had in some time after going undefeated in the month of October and we're playing a Spartans team that was reeling after losing six straight games. Many fans viewed this as the easiest remaining game on our schedule, came out flat, couldn't overcome our mistakes. 
I become pretty jaded, pessimistic after the first past half decade of watching Husker football. But once we lost that MSU game, I messaged my buddies and said, we aren't going to make a bowl game. And that was it. That was the difference. They ended up five and seven. They needed to beat a reeling Michigan State team, and they just could not do it. Rough. That's a tough loss. It's been a rough run as a Husker fan. Yeah. For the yeah Husker fandom, although they're going in the in the night right direction now, partially because of what we're talking about now. How do you feel about the coaching staff, and were there any coaching staff changes during or after the season? If so, what are your thoughts on both the new and departing coaches? Patrick Connor thinks Matt Rule and his coaching staff are a lot more organized than the last coaching staff. I'd say that's an understatement, John. I think so too, in a big way. Yeah, yeah, and would expect to see improvement and see it run more smoothly. He ranks the staff an 8 out of 10. Marcus Satterfield, of course, is the biggest question mark. Our other contributors are generally extremely high on Matt Rule as well. And given his track record at pass stops and the commitment of five-star QB Dylan Rayola, Nebraska definitely seems like they're pointed in the right direction. The agreement is that they want to see more from the offensive staff, which is fair. Um, added to the staff is new QB coach o- OC Glenn Thomas from the Steelers. He's considered a QB guru, so that will be fun to watch with a true frosh QB likely getting the reins right away. It's always an adventure, a guy coming straight out of high school, going in and being the guy. You never know. He could be great. He could be bad. He could be great and bad in a in one series at the same time. Yep. You know? So that's going to be really fun to watch, I think. And, and was a huge... We have to give Nebraska credit for that, you know, flipping him from Georgia. That was the biggest Nebraska recruiting win probably since they joined the big 10. Oh, I, I don't see how it can't be. That was, it's massive. Yeah. Um, and then we're talking about which players will make an immediate impact next year. Obviously all eyes are on the aforementioned Dylan Rayola, you know, Huskers fans imaginations will be running wild all off season with dreams of this five-star legacy, how he'll perform come September. Um, but of course, you know, he is a true freshman. There's probably going to be some ups and downs. It'll be interesting to watch. Uh, other guys they listed as contributors potentially next year, freshman wide receiver, Ja'Cory Barney will get some snaps and Oregon transfer Dante Dowell will be a top running back option along with incumbent Emmett Johnson. So, um, expect them to utilize that offensive line, get downhill with the backs like Matt rule likes to do Jamal Banks and Isaiah Nair. Coming in at receiver, they are um, A, big-bodied wide receivers, and B, give veteran leadership. So they've got a transfer from Wake Forest and Texas, respectively. Um, So that'll be really good. They'll need those guys to contribute right away, probably. Stefan Thompson, defense returning a lot of its production from last season, but there was a big hole at middle linebacker where they lost Luke Reimer and Nick Heinrich. Stefan Thompson was very productive in this system under Tony White at Syracuse. Should start in, slide in nicely at starting linebacker. Micah Mescuza, Mescua, excuse me, a transfer from Florida who started his career at Baylor. Has 21 starts at right guard over the past two seasons. Should immediately slide in the starting position there at Nebraska, bolstering a somewhat an already experienced and hopefully improving offensive line. And then Carter Nelson, who's uh, apparently dominated eight-man football in small-town Nebraska. So we'll see. Supposedly he's going to be the truth. Tight end wide receiver, a hybrid type. Those guys can hit big or they, you know, you know, or, ne- or they can be tweeners. You never know. So it'll be fun to see if that's a guy who's, you know, can come in and make the jump to the big 10 right away. 
But yeah, it's all about Dylan Rayola, John. I think that, you know, the Huskers in next year are kind of going to, they're going to have a, probably going to have a good defense again, and they're probably going to run the ball decently enough. Um, the question is, you know, can Rayola be an effective passer as a true frost in the big 10? And who do you got after that? That's the thing, yeah. you know, uh, if what, I mean, sure. If he's, if he is a, a success and he's effective, great. But then the fear is, well, who do we have backing him up? We have uh, Kalen, a true frosh, uh, and then Harburg. Um, so, and you don't really know. You know what you got with Harburg, but you don't know what you got with Kalen at this point in time. And But what if, God forbid, Rayla is not? He doesn't turn out to be um, everything you want him or need him to be in that first season. Not that he can't get there, but you know, it's a this is his first. He's a true freshman, and you're gonna have to see what happens. So it's a scary, scary situation to be in, for sure. Yeah, but exciting, yeah, absolutely. Because if it hits, it could really yep. hit. Five star guys are like for that, sure. you know. They've got high, high upside, and if they can get there quick, they can really get there. Um, all right, next question. What are your thoughts about all? three of your coordinators offense defense special teams um marcus satterfield offensive coordinator qb says they say uh, let's get this out of the way first he's the whipping boy of the nebraska fan base approval ratings potentially in the single digits it says those who are still on the fence of him to the um point to the multitude of injuries on the offensive side of the ball which is fair and will they somewhat have a point? Look at his history in previous stops at OC show a guy who has never coordinated a high-powered offense. So fans accepted that Rule wasn't going to fire Satterfield after one season. But if the offense continues to struggle in 2024, would not be surprised if Sat gets sent packing. So it'll be a prove-it year for Satterfield. And he's got a true frosh quarterback. So good luck to him. <laughs> it could work out we don't know he could be trevor lawrence we don't have any yep. idea yep. you know he's a five star um tony white defensive coordinator on the polar opposite end of the spectrum he's beloved by the husker faithful guy has a history of success came in and immediately took a middling below average defense and made it elite you know let's be real he flirted with the usc dc and san diego state head coach openings and he wants to be a head coach so he'll likely be a guy who jumps soon but, you know, the Huskers have him for another season, and they'll probably be elite in that season. And then special teams. Uh, Ed Foley, he's a rule guy. They have a long history working together, and it was no surprise when Rule brought him over when he took the job. He's kind of a, quote, not my words, goofy older guy who has endeared himself to the Nebraska locals as the designated in-state recruiter, close quote. As a coordinator, he's okay. Uh, special teams were up and down this year. So average was an improvement over the embarrassment of Scott Frost, but nothing to write home about. What letter grade would you give your team for this past season? Every contributor gave the Huskers a C or a C minus for last year. Uh, Nebraska hype man said this was one of the worst teams in the country in turnovers. Injuries hurt the team, but they had a lot of guys stepping up and get meaningful snaps. Defense was pretty good for the most part. D line stepped up big time. Offensive rotated three QBs just hurt to watch sometimes. Yes, it did hurt to watch. It was rough. It was rough on the eyes at times. I can't disagree with that at all. What position groups are you most excited to see going into spring, Paul? Obviously, we talked about it. It's QB. Still in Rayola. How does he adjust? Physically, he's there. Here's one uh, caveat. Rayola is not a mobile quarterback. And Nebraska's had mobile quarterbacks for a long time. So 
it'll be on Matt Rule to get that running back run game going because they're probably not they're not going to be able to depend on the quarterback to carry the running game like they did this year. So the passing game is going to have to be dynamic enough that it you know keeps defenses honest so Nebraska can run the ball. Yeah, I think our. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's going to be drastic. Yeah, for sure. The drastic change. And I'm, I'm very curious again to see what Satterfield does with, does with that. I think if he can, if he can adjust, um, and if Rayola stays healthy, uh, I'm very, I'm very interested to see if Nebraska can pull out an effective passing game. And if they can, I think they will definitely, um, be pretty dangerous. Yep. And that's why, uh, our contributors are also really excited to see the wide receivers in the secondary. And that's hard to judge, right? Because if the wide receivers in the secondary are doing well, it could be because both groups are doing well, are good, or it could be because both groups are bad if you're not sure. So that'll be something to track for sure. All right. Which position does your team most need to address in the spring transfer portal? Uh, QB. Even with Rayola at that spot, you only have a true frosh and Harburg in that room. They need a lower level QB with experience to help out at this point. I think that's probably true. You need to have, you know, you need to have four Scott. You can't, you can't be depending on a true frosh to be your third string quarterback. That's, that's rough. Um, I know you're having one be your starting quarterback, but that's a little different in this case. Left tackle. They think one of the biggest questions marks for the season is who's going to block the backside of the blind side, excuse me, of Dylan Rayola. And so that'd be something to get. Of course, tackles are really hard to find in the transfer portal. Guys who are playing tackle, generally schools will do whatever they can to keep them where they are. So it'll be interesting to see if they could even find anyone with that body type that they could bring in. How's the team doing NIL wise? Is your collective growing? Do you utilize a pay for play model like Ohio State? Or do you wait to pay guys until they produce on the field like Michigan? The 1890 Collective has definitely picked it up miles ahead of where it was a year ago, which has helped land some guys. Um, And they also uh, went on to say NIL is a tricky topic because obviously, you know, the vast majority of reports are secondhand. You don't know exactly what's going on anywhere. That's true everywhere. But Nebraska was able to keep their current roster together and haven't had a bunch of unexpected um, defections from contributors. So that sounds good. And it also says that uh, there's been chatter that Rule is averse towards bringing in a big name player at a high price. For example, spending, you know, a bunch of money on a transfer Cam Ward type when he was out there and we weren't sure where he was going to go. So, but they're not sure how true that is. Maybe Rule would have gone after a guy like that if he could have. Obviously, he's tried to, he's decided to hitch his wagon to Rayola. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. And, uh, but I know Nebraska is doing pretty well with NIL. So they should be, Nebraska fans should probably be pretty happy about that. John, do you have any thought, last thoughts on Nebraska before we move on? Oh, I, I agree with the grading. I think that they, you know, I think we talked about it. Giving them a C, um, is pretty standard. I think, I think for what a first year head coach at a program like this that was, struggling significantly for the past number of years. Um, I think Matt rule did as good of a job as he could have. Um, you know, there could be some things that he may need to upgrade, obviously with the coordinator position, maybe, uh, we'll find that out, but I think overall they're sitting in a pretty good spot to keep moving forward. And I, I think there's cause for some excitement in, in Lincoln. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that the defense is going to be elite again, and we're going to find they're going to have pretty good running backs. I think they've got some guys who can make plays. You know, some they brought some guys in at receiver, and we're going to find out can those guys make plays and how good is Dylan Riola? That's what we're going to find out right away where he's at in his development. And it's going to be definitely a story to watch in the Big Ten yeah. this fall. I have a feeling they're finally going to get to six wins. I just do. Absolutely. I agree. Matt Rule has always turned around every program he's been at. He had it at Temple and Baylor. Um, they always had big improvements in year two. So the fact that he got to five and seven last year makes me think that um, they'll definitely you know, find a way to get at least a six and six, seven and five somewhere in yeah, there this year. Agreed. Awesome. All right. Moving on, John. We're talking about a new Big Ten team. Get excited to talk about the Washington Huskies. And we want to thank our contributor at 8-9-Windy-City on Twitter. Name is FarmerR7. And that's, yeah, at 8-9-Windy-City. So we want to thank them, uh, him for his contributions. Really appreciate that. And uh, gave us some awesome stuff about one of these new Big Ten teams. So right off the bat, which position groups were good? It's hard to find a weak spot on the offense. Everyone contributed and everyone thrived. O-line, QB, and wide receiver obviously steal the show. But there is an argument to be made that the UW offensive offense was the best in program history. And that takes success at every level. On defense, while there were glimmers everywhere, it was the linebacker core that was the most consistent and showed the most improvement. Uh, John, I have to agree about the offense. I mean, Michael Pinnock's had a season for the ages, and I think, in my opinion, should have won the Heisman totally Trophy. Agree. And, you know, what he did last year was incredible. Roma Dunze at wide receiver, uh, McMillan, Polk, you know, they had they had unbelievable NFL-level weapons, and they were dominant offensively. And their defense was was pretty good, yeah, too. Absolutely. Uh, which units struggled? The interior of the D-line was simply not able to consistently make plays. Additionally, there were some spotty moments at cornerback two and at the safety level throughout the season as injuries plagued the unit. So, yeah, that was a problem. They did have some some serious injuries there in the secondary, which always makes it hard. Um, as we've seen, there's, you know, there's only so much depth you have in those positions. Interior of the D-line, John, that's what we talked about. We talked about those 270 pound defensive tackles and how hard it is to play when you got, when you're undersized in the middle like that. And I think Washington found that out when they, when they ran into Michigan in the college football yeah. playoff. All right. Uh, which position coaches were successful or unsuccessful? Jamarcus Shepard at wide receiver coach, obviously Scott Huff OL coach delivered the best seasons at their position groups in UW history. And uh, Scott Huff's unit won the, won the uh, Joe Moore award for best offensive line in the country. So that tells that story. And then uh, Breckerfield on the DL was a disappointment. The linebacker core was consistently making up for their lack of dominance and Braylon Trice covered up many inadequacies uh, personally. So which injuries hurt the most? The injuries that hurt the most were Jalen McMillan. Um, Offense just wasn't quite the same without him. And then the safeties all season long, the end of season injuries that limited Dylan Johnson at RB were critical as well and was a huge part of the reason their opinion for their struggles versus Michigan, the national championship. I mean, I agree and disagree. I agree that it hurt to lose, to have Dylan Johnson be limited in any way. 
I don't think there was any doing anything to that Michigan defense. No, I, I mean, I think, I think they could have been all been, I think they could have all been at full health and it wouldn't have made any difference. I mean, on a minuscule level, it might've made a difference, sure. but do I think they would have, it would have made a difference that they, they the outcome would have been different. The, no, no. Michigan was going to win no matter what. And I just, I, I truly believe that. Yeah. That Michigan team is one of the greatest, and that's no slight on Washington. Washington yeah. fans, your team was fantastic Absolutely. this past year and deserved to make the national title. It was a season for the ages. You won the Pac-12, you know, fantastic season. It's just that Michigan team is one of the greatest teams I've ever, you know, I've ever just seen. To- uh, utterly complete in every way, and it was terrifying. It really and truly <laughs> was. Uh, which were your most pivotal games of the year, and how did they go? UW won a lot of pivotal games in order, excluding the Sugar Bowl and national championship. He'd say Oregon regular season, Oregon Pac-12 championship. Um, and yeah, has some comments about Oregon, how they feel about them, <laughs> which I won't read. Uh, at Oregon State, at USC, at Arizona, found a way to win all of them, win close in all of them. That ability to win close games was the calling card of the 2023 UW Huskies. How do you feel about the coaching staff and the coaching changes made during or after the season? Coaching changes could do an entire pod about this for UW. A gut punch and abrupt end to the best two-year run of any UW staff in history. Lots of emotion and abandonment issues to unpack with my therapist (laughs) come day. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) <laughs> the new fish regime starts and we still don't have a DC. They do have a DC now though. So that's good. So they, but at the time he said to be determined with all new, everything and turnover on the roster and the entire staff. I think most UW fans feel that this was the best hire they could have made under the circumstances, but you know, there's a professional distance. We're all keeping after being burned so ba- badly by Kalen DeBoer after going. Yeah, all I can't blame him. And John, that's what I'll say sucks about DeBoer yeah. leaving. Washington starting over essentially from scratch after the best two year run in modern program history, they should be, you know, recruiting at a top level and like riding that high to, to, you know, to the best place possible. And instead they're kind of starting over from scratch. Well, it kind of, it, it, it's sad and, and I don't blame them for feeling that way at all. And it kind of pisses me off too, because I was really looking forward to Alabama just like nose diving and being, you know, at least, terrible for their standards for at least a while i know right um and right. now they have an amazing coach all over again is he nick saban nah, maybe maybe not but like yeah i really wanted to see alabama suffer for a lot longer so that pisses me off personally that's my feelings about it sorry yeah fans. i it is it is rough i agree with that so i do feel for washington fans there then uh, next question, are the new coaches better or worse than the ones they replace? Obviously, they can't say the new coaching staff's better than the old one. He said it would require limitless homerism and mental gymnastics to think we're going to improve from a staff that went 5-0 and versus rivals Oregon and Washington State, finished 25-3, and won a Pac-12 title, first Alamo and Sugar Bowls, and guided them to the national championship game. So that is quite a two-year run. And yeah, obviously, Jed Fish can't be expected to, you know, achieve that right away. No. It's hard to follow, for sure. Yeah. As for next year and players that are important, um, 
QB Will Rogers and transfer RB Jonah Coleman will determine the team's ceiling. However, it's the ability to rebuild an offensive line that will determine if they suffer the fate of 2023 Colorado. That's a little fatalistic. I don't think I don't think you're turning into 2023 Colorado. No, I would I would just I would relax on that for sure. Chill. Yeah, that's that's, that's dark. Um, on defense, Carson Bruner, uh, Cab Fabiculan, and Elijah Jackson will be the anchors. Um, Mer- then they got said he got crushed, got murdered in the transfer portal and NFL draft. They said eleven out of eleven offensive starters gone. That should say all you need to know. Started to bring guys back and get guys in, but it's just impossible to replace what they've lost. Um, you can't think of many teams that will be more active in the string transfer portal than UW, especially on the O-line. There's a lot of work still needed to build a team that can compete regularly in the Big Ten You know, next season when they need to be ready to compete. He's, it sounds like he knows what he's talking about and understands what uh, Washington is, is getting into. Yes, I, w- I would agree with that statement. Um, he said, I really need a big TBD on coordinators at this point. Obviously the defensive hire hadn't been made yet when this was completed for the podcast and Brennan Carroll at OC is the known commodity and should be fine, but he's been underwhelmed with his ability to bring any O-line recruits as that is his side job. Scotty Graham at RB coach is quietly his best asset in their opinion. And, uh, Jordan Papoa. Returns to UW with special teams coordinator in his title should be fine. DC is uh, defense coordinator. Obviously, we know is Steve Belichick now. Past season grade A plus, no way around it. Fourteen and one, beat Oregon twice. Only undefeated Pac-12 season since the entrance of Utah and Colorado. Countless amazing close games at home and on the road. Final Pac-12 champions. Penix Adunze, first ever Sugar Bowl win in the playoff. And then a disappointing game versus Michigan. But you can't let that overshadow a truly stunning season that will live in UW lore. And absolutely, Huskies made a run all the way to the national title. They won the Pac-12. They were undefeated. That kind of season as a fan lives with you forever. So huzzah, Husky fans. Congratulations. It was a season for the Absolutely. Awesome. Um. Going into next year, they're most excited about running back and cornerback. If the transfer rumors are true in the secondary, there could be in for a massive reload there. Um, And they'll have a dynamic backfield with Cam Davis and Jonah Coleman. Now the question is, who will block for him? Um, (laughs) Said about the portal, already mentioned this, but I will shout this from the highest of the mountaintops. Offensive line in the portal now. Additionally, DL safety and linebacker would be helpful. Have to think Fish and company know this too. I will say offensive line is like the hardest thing to find in the portal, especially tackles. So that's tough that Washington has to be looking there, you know, in the spring for guys who have to play in the big 10. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what they're able to pick up there. Cause that's going to probably define, you know, whether they're able to make any hay offensively next yep. year. Um, and then last question about how's NIL going. Much to my surprise, NIL is improving dramatically. The new AD, Troy Dannon, has made this a priority. And apparently, we were a top 10 NIL in 2023, according to their sources. So that's amazing. This is likely magnified by having stars like Penix and Adunze. But either way, they're thrilled by the development of Montlake Futures over the last 18 months. Awesome. All right, John. 
any last thoughts on the Washington Huskies before we move on here? Well, I, I like I said before, I do think Washington will be able to come back and be competitive year in and year out. Um, uh, I could see them, especially with the resources that they're going to have and with their track record of being a solid program. I know that they've had a lot of ups and downs over the years and high highs and low lows. Uh, I could see that evening out a little bit coming into the Big Ten, um, but I could see them maybe riding along that like eight wins uh, pretty consistently. Um, so I, you know, I think they've got, they've got some things to look forward to in some of these changes, but I think it's good. Um, obviously we have yet to see with Jed Fish and what he can put together there, but, uh, I think that Washington just off of making the national title run this year, will be able to get some good guys in there. And if not, you know, if it all doesn't come together this year, I think they'll have a good shot at next year, as long as Jed Fish just doesn't you know, totally fall flat on his faith. Yeah. Or win a bunch of games and then go take the Florida job, <laughs> which is the other concern with Jeff Fish, is, is that that's the is that that's the job that he secretly, um, reportedly rumored to want. Yeah. Uh, so so we might be big Billy Napier fans at Florida next year for Washington. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I agree with you, John. Washington's been a solid program for a long time. Going back to Chris Peterson, you know, he built that really solid base and they've been really good since then. So I think Washington, you know, will build back and be competitive. It might be a little bit of a down year next year, but I think ultimately, you know, Washington will make the roster adjustments that you have to make to compete in the big time. Agreed. All right, John, let's talk about our next team. The Minnesota Golden Gophers. Roll the boat, Skyuma. Go Gophers. Go Gophers. Yep. You've got your, you've got, yes, this is when we do our Homer segment. So this is our Homer segment, but we still got contributors because we wanted a perspective that wasn't ours for these reviews. We thought that was important. So we want to thank our contributors uh, at Goldie's Burner, a.k.a. Goldman H. Gopher. John, that's such a good name. Wonderful. Love it. Goldie's burner at gold Goldman H gopher. I love that. And then we've got uh, Dylan who is at soda sports fan one. So thank you so much for your contributions. Both thank of you. you. We appreciate it guys. All right. Which position groups were good in 2023, 24 soda sports fan one, AKA Dylan said, I think gophers defensive line and wide receivers were good. D-line really showed up in nearly every game to help shut down opposing teams' run game and make them more one-dimensional. I do wish they were able to get home on the QB a little more frequently, but overall, I think they did well. As for wide receivers, I think they did well based on young guys stepping up with a less-than-ideal quarterback. And then, of course, Daniel Jackson was an absolute star this year, and he you know, shouldered a lot of the weight in the passing game. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, Minnesota also... um get some uh holding calls called in their favor maybe jaw joiner you know could get a get a little help man jaw needs to get some calls next year man he's seriously earned he's earned to get some calls next year if, if if he can't get any cold holding calls next year then i don't even know what to say anymore pj's got to be working the refs he's got to be calling that out to the refs before the game watch 17 watch what they're doing it was them. really bad yeah um, both contributors agreed the running back room showed its star power and freshman running back Darius Taylor, who averaged 114 yards per game and 5.8 yards per carry. We also saw how deep the group was with Zach Evans and Jordan Newbin's performances when Taylor was hurt. 
Goldman H. Gopher said both the offense and defensive line showed flashes of potential this year. On the offensive line, Ariante Ursary had a great year and returns as Pro Football Focus's highest graded offensive tackle heading into 2024. So high praise there. Notre Dame transfer Quinn Carroll improved from his 2022 campaign and true freshman Greg Johnson showed promise at left guard. On the defensive side, edge rusher Ja Joyner was a star for the Gophers, finishing with seven and a half sacks, two forced fumbles, all big honors to show for it. Kyler Baugh had a nice season at D tackle, finishing with 41 tackles and three sacks. And redshirt Frosh Anthony Smith saw increased minutes towards the end of the season and made the most of his opportunities, particularly in the quick lane bowl, finishing the day with one tackles for loss and a forced fumble. Um, you know, I would agree with that, John. I thought overall the defensive line could have rushed the passer a little better, but was ultimately pretty good. Here's what I'll say about the wide receivers. I think Daniel Jackson was elite and great. I think the supporting cast at wide receiver left something to be desired. No, I totally agree, man. The execution was poor. um, Outside of a lot of drops, a lot of drops. Yeah. I mean, you, you can point the finger a lot at Ethan, which we'll get to him, but those wide receivers were not helping him and neither was our tight end. No, no agreed. Um, which position struggled first and foremost, quite obvious that QB play was a major struggle this year. Ethan had some flashes and one week would look like he'd made some strides, but then he'd immediately regress the next week. Um, coach Fleck was extremely supportive of Ethan, but he just never seemed comfortable in the role. And I, I would agree with yep. that. Um, some people say the secondary struggled this year, and I think in some situations they did, but overall I don't think they performed that poorly. I think it was a classic case of the offense not getting any momentum and forcing the defense to be on the field more, resulting in fatigue and key plays not being made. That's probably fair. I will say when the Gophers got banged up late in the year, their secondary really, really yeah. struggled at that point. And they were just they had some bad fourth quarters in the secondary. Just some weird, bad fourth quarters that just should not should not have happened. Yeah. Um, on the negative side, obviously, we talked about how receivers st- struggled with drops and finished, uh, and this team finished 118th in team passing efficiency, which is woof. Um, so, yeah, John, the receiver showed up both on the good and the bad list, and it's because of Daniel Jackson. Like we said, he was amazing, and we need a healthier receiver room. You know, this happened at a lot of schools this year, had a lot of injuries at receiver. I think of teams like Nebraska and Indiana and Minnesota who really struggled with wide receiver injuries. And I think Minnesota, if we could stay a little, could stay a little healthier next year, could be a lot better at wide receiver. I agree. All right. Which position coaches were successful or unsuccessful in your opinion? Uh, Both contributors agreed that Rob Wenger was wildly unsuccessful as special teams coordinator this year. Um, The special teams were horrendous outside of Big Ten kicker of the year, Dragon Kesich, who was amazing. It's, you know, I got to totally and 100% agree with that. Um, Dragon is, he's an outlier um, where, but I think overall Wenger has just been, for all seven years he's been at Minnesota, was nothing but terrible for the most part, so. Yeah, Dylan had a great quote about this. He said, quote, as someone with real football knowledge and having coached at the high school level for a number of years, I truly think anyone with remotely any sense of the sport and goals of special team could have made them more prepared than Wenger did. (laughs) 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 Oh, God, that's, yep, yep. 
And oh, I can tell man. you that the vast majority of Gopher football fans would 100% agree with that statement. Oh, for sure. Endorse yeah. that. Yeah. Cosine. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, it's a statement about the state of Gopher special teams during the PJ Fleck era. But once again, Dragon Kesic comes back and he was great. Amazing. So there's, there's, you know, with a new uh, coordinator, maybe things improve this year. I think that's a real possibility. Yeah. Um, Goldman H. Gopher had harsh words for first-time OC and QB's coach Greg Harbo Jr. saying he did, quote, a particularly poor job nurturing quarterback Ethan Kaliak Manis, despite considerable hype coming with his first full year as starter. AK regressed significantly from his 2022 campaign, once parted from former coach Kirk Soraka, who went to Rutgers. If I had it my way, Harbo wouldn't be on this staff for 2024. John. What are you? Those are shots fired. So I got to ask, what are your thoughts on Greg Harbo? I mean, Goldman H. Gopher was not having it with to, it. Uh, look, I, I I think it's fair to to a degree. I think that I know that I uh, he's not alone in that thought process. Um, it did look like, you know, Ethan was not being developed well. Um, and I've just always had some, you know, and you didn't see it mu- uh, much improved with our backup either. So it does make you question that. Um, it makes me a little nervous, but I guess we'll have to wait and see this year uh, whether or not you know Brosmer uh, is going to be a massive upgrade. But will it be? Will it really have anything to do with him in the first place, with Harbo at, at all in the first place? So it may just be that Brosmer has uh, had some his own coaching and he's been doing well just before you know before any of this. And so I don't know, man. I I, I can see why people want to call for his head. But it's a little hard to tell. I want to see him develop how he does with. Uh, uh, gosh, I'm just blanking on um, the Arkansas kid. Brosmer. Oh, uh, Drake, Drake Lindsay. Lindsay. Yeah, we'll see from there. Yeah, that's a good call because Brosmer is pretty much a finished product after being a four year starter at the FCS, you know, at the FCS yeah. level. Um, here's what I'll say about Greg Harbo. You can lead a horse to water, you cannot make him drink, and you can call the right pass play, but you cannot make your quarterback hit an open receiver. There were two games in Illinois and Purdue where Ethan Cal- or no, where Ethan Calic Manis had to make a five yard or no, not Purdue, Illinois and or I forget the other one, but he had to make like a five yard pass for the Gophers to win the game, and he couldn't do it. Could not do it. You can't. You can't teach a guy. I mean, at this level, either you can do that or you can't. Yeah. And if you're not comfortable and you're too much of a head case to make that throw when you need to make it, you know, the big moment I thought was against Wisconsin when PJ Athan won the fourth down. He threw it ten yards over the receiver's head on another five yard pass, and PJ just looked at him like, "I can't believe you're my quarterback." Yeah. And it's it's legit. And I say. John, I saw all the home games and I attended the UNC game. I can tell you there were receivers running open Mm -hmm. a lot. And against UNC, now granted, they were dropping passes. Don't get me wrong. So they were not always helping their quarterback. But there were receivers running open a lot and Ethan was just missing them completely. And it's not because there was pressure in the pocket. UNC was not getting a bunch of pressure on him. Other schools were not always getting a lot of pressure on him. He was just standing back there and completely missing 
easy routine throws. Well, and and as we saw as the season went on, and understandably so, he was he would get frustrated, but you saw it to a point where emotionally he was compromised. And that yes. was really that was what I when I first saw that, I was like, okay, that's it. You know, that's it's game over. And not just for for this game, you know, whatever game I was watching him him lose his stuff. Um, it was, it, it, it seemed to me that was the end of it for the season. Like he was just not the guy you can't keep your composure. You're just not going to be able to cut it in the big 10. It's just not going to happen. No, you can't teach a guy to be clutch. You can't, that's a gene. You either have that or you don't. I, I firmly believe that. And I have always, when I'm judging players, I think that's something you have to, either you can rise to the moment or you can't. And Ethan was not a guy who would rise them up. But hey, we're going to find out at Rutgers whether he yep. can. So that's the great thing about college football. You get another chance. And Greg Harbo gets to prove that he was. Because I thought Greg Harbo schemed up a lot of good stuff. I thought he ran a lot of good things. I thought he took advantage of defensive tendencies at times that were really did some things that were really nice. And I think Ethan, you know, unbelievably poor QB performance was just a lot to blame yeah. for it. All right, moving on. What injuries hurt the most? Uh, Cody Lindenberg hit hurt the most, and Darius Taylor was what our uh, contributors said. And I would agree. I think that Cody Lindenberg was, you know, he and Tyler Newbin were the best players in that defense, and not having them him was a disaster. And it took about half the season for his backups to figure out how to play at the Big Ten yeah. level, which they did eventually. Yeah but it took a long time for guys like Maverick Baranowski for the lights to turn because they weren't ready because Cody Lindenberg should have been taking those snaps. And he just never, it was so, so disheartening. How many games did we, were we sitting there and like seeing him? Oh, he's on the sidelines or he's warming up. Oh, he's warming up. He's warming warming up. up. He's going to play. And no show. No. Yeah, it was no. And whatever the injury was, I don't know, but like it took him out. What? Like how many games did he actually play in the season? Didn't he miss like eight games? Something, or something crazy. Yeah. It was he missed seven or eight games. Least, he missed a lot yeah, of at games. least seven games, but I'm thinking it was. I'm thinking it was eight. So yeah, yeah, man. And and even when he did finally get back out on the field, he just wasn't himself. No. So hopefully he can stay. And then obviously Darius Taylor, that was after his ascension, it was really rough on the offense to lose Darius Taylor. He's really special. Zach Evans did it filled, you know, did well at times. Jordan Newbin had some moments, but you know, Darius Taylor is one of the great, one of the best running backs in the big 10. And those guys are, you know, are not that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with this completely, John. I think they, they hit it on the nose on the head. Those were the injuries that hurt the most. I would also add though, that the injuries in the secondary were particularly brutal in how much depth they hit at the same positions, particularly cornerback. Gophers were legitimately playing third and fourth string guys at cornerback, most notably in that hard fought loss to Wisconsin. And that's really rough. Yeah, I think that Minnesota, had they been able to stay healthier in that position in the secondary, I think Minnesota could have probably won at least one more game, if not two. I think yeah. that the running backs were still good enough to mm-hmm. to pull out a, you know, pull out a win, score enough points, but it was just, I mean, you saw it, you saw when it w- when everything would just collapse and fall apart due to the, the lack of experience. Um, and it just, that's, it just killed you. It killed us. And Tyler Newbin, you know, was just, he could, he's as amazing as he was. He couldn't do everything. 
No, he couldn't. And at times he tried to do everything to yep. our detriment. And he took the, you know, as Fleck always says, he took the cheese a few times and we got burned on double yep. moves. Um, most notably on the, against in that loss to Illinois on that late <sighs> touchdown, half the field touchdown pass where he just went for the fake when you just can't. Do that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Gophers were close, but they were not close yep. enough. Ultimately, um, what were your pivotal games and how did they go? Dylan said, I think the UNC game was the most pivotal. UNC being ranked 17 at the time of that game set a great challenge in front of Fleck and company early in the game. Actually, until even later in the second half, it looked like maybe the Gophers could pull out a victory, but that's when we saw Ethan really not live up to expectations. And it just, we could not, he really played poorly. I know it's such a Rube fan thing to just talk about quarterback play, right? And I've been, you heard me in recent years when people were ripping on Tanner Morgan. I was like, Tanner Morgan's not the problem with this gopher offense. There are other structural problems with this mm-hmm. gopher offense. Ethan was the problem with this offense. Yeah. He really and truly was. And uh, here's John Goldman H. Gopher gave us a bit of an essay, but buckle up. It's worth reading out loud. To me, there are two games of perfect quote. Sorry. To me, there are two games that perfectly encapsulate why the Gophers struggled in 2023, both of which I attended. First was at Northwestern week four, a get right road test one week after a game against UNC that shouldn't have gotten away from PJ and company. I was at Ryan Field that afternoon, left the game after Minnesota went up 31-10 at the end of the third quarter. A 30-minute Uber ride home later, I turned on the TV to find we had given up 27 unanswered points and lost in overtime to a then reeling Wildcat team. Second was our week 11 game at Ohio State. While no one in their right mind believed we would win this one, the game in Columbus presented an opportunity for Minnesota to play aggressively against one of the top teams in the country. Instead, the staff called a frustratingly conservative game plan for four quarters in an embarrassing 37-3 blowout loss. And he said, I selected the Northwestern Ohio State games above because they both serve as perfect examples of Flex Trestle-esque game plan working against itself in two different ways. In the case of the latter, Fleck had no intention of winning the game whatsoever. Even when it had gotten far away from the Gophers, the team stuck to an overly conservative game plan. And in the former, the staff let their foot off the gas and coupled with a few special teams gaffes and defensive mistakes, let the game slip away. So, John, what do you have to say about that critique of PJ's game management and decision-making? I think he, I think he nailed it. I mean... This is something you and I talked about the entire season every single week, and it was getting so freaking exhausting to talk about it over and over again of this trestle ball that PJ likes to play and his conservative attitude when, you know, you just have to be aggressive against certain teams. And you and just and just as also as a fan to see your coach just give up is so disheartening. It's demoralizing. And, and you know, he was trying not to get hurt. He was playing a game. The game plan against Ohio State was let's not get yeah. hurt. And I get it to a degree. But at the same time, I'm it's just it makes me so depressed that you're not even trying. And, and you but you know, it wasn't just against the Ohio States like you saw it happen in other games, too, where he just kind of, it looked like he was just giving up and. And I'm I'm just sick of it, dude. I'm still sick of it, and talking about it still makes me angry. I'm over this overly conservative, uh, you know, 
way of coaching this team. Um, I'm not saying to go out there and be just, you know, the total opposite, but you got to be willing to, to do something and to take some risks and throw the ball. And I don't, you know, and he just wasn't man, I think. And it just, it was confusing. It was really confusing to watch because he also would then sometimes do that and take stupid, unnecessary risks. And which also was just confusing. So I don't know, man, his in-game ability to coach is just infuriating as a fan. That's all I can really say about it. Yeah, he's gotten a little better about going for it on fourth down. He does it a little more than he used to. I will give him that. Uh, I think he had to do that. But yeah, it's 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 when you play so conservatively again, my only defensive fleck is Ethan was so rough. Yes that I kind of understand it. I didn't like it. And I think that anytime, I don't think, I think it sends a terrible message to your team to just give up on a game. I don't know what you're saying to your locker room when you do that. Um, But I understand why, why he did it. And I think, you know, we've seen when Fleck has a more high powered offense, he's a little more aggressive to a point. And so like in 2019, so Brosmer is a much better quarterback should be, you know, Brosmer should be the best quarterback flex ever had just based on pro football focus ratings and things like that. So if he is, it'll be interesting to see if Fleck can stand back and just let him cook a little bit. And I just want to see, I want PJ to, to practice what he preaches and change his best. You know, I'm not saying you have to totally go away from your style of play, but you also need to realize that a lot of that tr- of trestle ball is no longer it, it's no longer relevant. It doesn't work in nope. in today's college football in the Big Ten. Trestle ball no longer works. Evolve, change. Come on. Even the power running teams attack. Michigan was attacking all the time. They weren't you know they weren't waiting mm-hmm. around. If you look at, I'm not a big NFL guy. If you look at the Detroit Lions, they were attacking all the time. And they, you can be a power, you can be a power running team and still yep. attack. And that's what we need to see more of from PJ Fleck. I absolutely agree with that. That's been James Franklin's Achilles mm-hmm. heel, and we've saw that burn him in big games. It's been PJ Fleck's Achilles heel also, and it's burned him in big yep. games. That's why it's always fun when those guys get together, because <laughs> you never know what could happen. Actually, you do know what's going to happen. All right. <laughs> Um, how do you feel about the coaching staff? Were there any coaching staff changes during or after the season? If so, what are your thoughts on both the new and departing coaches? PJ and staff do a solid job of preparing the team for Saturdays. Um, Minnesota is rarely out muscled on game day. They play clean football, but puzzling game management decisions continue to be a downfall of this team. So sort of what we just talked yeah. about. And, you know, as a, say as a whole, I'm really encouraged by the staff. I'm a big flat guy. I think being a life program, a culture bringer has more influence on the direction of the program and the on the field than many give it credit for. You know, that being said, again, the biggest in critique of Fleck is the inability or unwillingness to make changes to the weaknesses of his staff. But he's done that now. Wenger leaving was the biggest positive departure. Bob Legashevsky seems like a big step up. He spent 40 years of experience, 12 of which were in the NFL. If you make it in the NFL that long, you're probably doing something right especially at something like special teams. Um, Joe Rossi leaving, defensive coordinator Joe Rossi leaving hurts a lot. He's been a 
cornerstone of a gopher defense that wasn't as good in 23, but overall has been very elite under PJ Fleck. Corey Heatherman brings a wealth of experience over from Rutgers and he's proven at the FCS level. He can do it. Um, but it remains to be seen if he can accomplish it at the FBS level in the big 10. So yeah, I agree with all that. I think uh, it says, do your new coaches seem better or worse than the ones they replaced? Ligashevsky is a major upgrade from weather from Wenger. Heatherman is probably seems at first glance like a downgrade from Rossi, but he's also from that same tree. He's a very similar kind of coach. So I think he has the potential to be, you know, as good as a Rossi. At least that's the hope, you know, in Dinkytown. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's definitely an upgrade here. I think PJ finally did what we thought was the impossible. And number one, starting with the firing of Rob Wanger, Um, you know, the rumor was rumor has it that they were like their best buds. They're really close. And PJ was just yes. not willing to part ways with him because um, PJ is loyal to a fault, um, which I respect. Yes. But I also, you know, it, it like I said, to a fault. So I think making these moves, it says a lot. Um, I really hope this is PJ changing his best and moving in the direction and hopefully um, you know, I mean, cause what are you going to do? I guess like with the whole thing with Joe losing Joe Rossi, Rossi, which is not a surprise. I, I was, we were expecting a, a head coaching position, not, not a defensive coordinator at Michigan state, but I think yeah. Corey Heatherman is, is, has the potential to be very good, very solid. You saw what he did at Rutgers and I, I'm very impressed uh, with that and what they've done over there defensively. So, um, and Rutgers was extremely upset. To oh, lose yeah. Him. Yeah. And and I'm encouraged that it is the same system. Rutgers and Minnesota, for people who don't know, Rutgers and Minnesota have this basically the same coaching tree. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they run the pretty much the exact same defensive scheme. So it shouldn't be a big adjustment for the players at all, which I always think it's positive when you can have that kind of schematic continuity. Mm-hmm. And special teams, man, I really I hope that we can see some kind of average return game that would be that would be amazing to me a competent return that would be great and 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 coverage units yep i would those are that's yeah i would feel really good about that i and you have to give pj credit you know winger was his best bud so for him to part ways with him must not have been easy that can damage a friendship for sure so pj knows the heat's on him and he made the changes that he that he needed to make and i give him a lot of credit for that um, what players will make an immediate impact next year? Uh, it's all about Max Brosmer on offense, man. The QB from New Hampshire. He was the leading passer in the FCS last year. Uh, we've also got running back C.A. Bangura coming over from Ohio. Uh, running back Marcus Major transferring in. And then uh, wide receiver Christian Driver. Donald Driver's son cr- transferring in at wide receiver. So that'll be really interesting. And then on defense, Mike Gerald will walk right in and transfer in and start at cornerback. And then everybody's eyes are going to be on Coy Parrish. I don't think he's there for spring ball, but in the summer, the eyes going to fall camp, the eyes will be on him because he is the highest rated recruit the Gophers have had since Carter Coughlin. I think he could be special in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. He was the MVP of the uh, high school All-American game. And that's a hard thing to do as a defensive player. Mm -hmm for sure. Um, How did you do in the transfer portal, both losing and gaining players? The only really big player they lost to the portal was Ethan, which, you know, which he said, which (laughs) Goldman H. Gopher says respectfully was a good loss if there ever was one, close quote. 
um, the regression. We talked about all that stuff and then, you know, brought in some good players like we talked about to contribute. Minnesota came out of the transfer with seven incoming athletes committing. Six of them are offensive players. This shows a commitment to bettering a gopher offense that was stagnant in 2023. I agree with that. And of course, like we said, the name to watch is Max Brosmer, of course. Yeah, I think you know, for for me, the, the biggest loss is is Zach Evans. I think that really hurts. I think that he had so much potential. I understand he wanted to go back and play play closer to home and what have you, but I saw so much potential with him, and I really think he he could have turned out to be even better as uh, you know, give him a couple more years of uh, of improvement. And I just think I would have liked to personally just seen him him continue to develop. I agree with you, but at the same time, he wanted to be the man, and he was never going to be the man with Darius That's Taylor. That's true. Um, and Darius Taylor is a special player. So sometimes you lose that. I am excited for the new running backs coming in. I think they show a lot of potential. I like their film a lot. So, you know, we'll see if they're able to replace what we've lost in uh, Zach Evans. What are your thoughts about all three coordinators, offense, defense, special teams? Dylan said, I'm still confident in our OC. I think eighth and shortcomings were more of the fault in our lack of production. Um, doesn't want to be as predictable. And that's a, that's a PJ thing too, to be a little more aggressive, a little less predictable confidence in special teams on this new guy is high. Cause it can't be worse than it was with Wenger at the helm. <laughs> True statement. <laughs> and for, and as for defense says that I think there's a lot of unknowns. He could be really good, but it's yet to be seen in a DC capacity at this level. And that's fair. We've seen him do it at the FCS level, which makes me think he can do it here. Um, but you won't know for sure until he's actually calling plays in the Big Ten. Goldman H. Gopher said, if my feelings about co-OC and play caller Greg Harbo Jr. weren't already clear, I'm not a fan. I'm sure he's a great guy, but the combination of his own inexperience and flex lean on offensive conservatism create an ugly on-field product for this Gopher offense. Goldman H. Gopher not holding back about Greg Harbo. So, John, we'll find out. I think Harbo. I think Harbo was a victim of bad quarterback play and actually called a lot of good stuff last year. And with a better quarterback and Max Brosmer, I think we're going to find out if Harbo is up to the challenge yeah. or not. What letter grade would you give your team for this past season? Our contributors gave a D and a D plus. I think those are fair grades to give. The Gophers had some moments, but this team largely underperformed expectations. What position groups are you most excited to see going to spring ball? We talked about it. It's quarterback. And then, of course, it'll be, you know, Corey Parrish. And then I think also the receiver room, you know, veterans Daniel Jackson, Lamecki Brockington, Elijah Spencer return, you know, and then you've got Kendrick Lanier, who was a redshirted last year, who's been much, uh, much hyped up. And then, you know, we'll see if the Gophers can get a the mythical Christian Hoskins, too, somewhere. With his yeah, Kristen Hoskins, with, man, is he still on the team? I mean, I know uh, he is. I mean, this this speed I keep hearing about for I don't know how many years in a row now that he, apparently he has, and I just I'm starting to I don't I don't even know if he's real at this point. I I'm not sure, but I'll be looking <laughs> forward. I would love to see what he can do, but I hear good things about Kenrick Lanier for sure. Yep. Um, which position is your team most needed to address in the spring transfer portal? Uh, secondary at times the season was incredibly thin at DB and linebacker due to injury. So cornerback and linebacker additions should be Minnesota's primary focus in the transfer portal window. Also need depth at quarterback and offensive line. 
John, I agree. Gophers absolutely need a QB, a DB, and a linebacker. If they can find an offensive tackle, that would be awesome. But those guys don't grow on trees, and they cost a lot of money, so I'm not holding my breath. How's your team doing NIL-wise? Is your collective growing? Do you utilize a pay-for-play model like in Ohio State, or do you wait to pay guys until they produce on the field? Goldman H. Gopher said, quote, first off, love the Ohio State call out here, LOL. <laughs> uh, Dinkytown Athletes, Minnesota's NIL Collective, helped to retain almost all of our starting talent with remaining eligibility. They've done a great job of actively activating opportunities with businesses in the Twin Cities community. And from what I've heard, are wonderful to work mm-hmm. with. And uh, I think, you know, that's what I've heard too, John. And I know that the that the collective has been growing in membership pretty rapidly. So Minnesota was probably behind the ball a little bit to start because they have a very strict compliance department, but Derek Burns has done a really good job with dinky town athletes. You got to give him a lot of credit and they've managed to, you know, not only keep all the key players pretty much from last year, but managed to go out and get Max Brosmer, which I know, I know it didn't, you know, I know they paid some money for him, Minnesota is not a pay for play school. It's mostly a, you know, bring guys in and have them earn it. But I believe they went out and were like, hey, we got to get a quarterback. And they managed to go out and get that quarterback. So that's really encouraging. Yeah. And I know Dinky Town Athletes is only going to continue to grow. And they've got a lot of other things in, in uh, planned, I think, for, for availability for products for fans to purchase and uh, help contribute. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They ha- also have, you can just be a member, but you can be a member, but you can also do things like, like Iowa. Dinkytown Athletes has a beer, which I think is huge. And there are rumors of a coffee coming soon. So, and there's been some bacon and other things. So I think, I think this is really innovative of these collectives to give fans things they're going to buy anyway Mm -hmm. and give it a chance to benefit, um, give them an option where they can make that purchase and have it benefit their favorite football team or their favorite basketball team. Um, so I think that's in our, you know, obviously we're talking football, so that's our concern. And I know, you know, that's where my focus would be. So that's really, uh, it's really encouraging, but also Minnesota is definitely, you know, not is still behind a lot of schools too. So they have a lot of work to do as well. All right, John. Well, I know we promised we'd go shorter today, but it's an hour and 45 minutes in. Do you, what are your uh, last thoughts about the Gophers before we wrap this up? Uh, there's a lot of question marks. Um, I am cautiously optimistic for Minnesota. I do think that they will go bowling next year. Um, you know, just a little preview. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say they're going to win 10 games. Um, but I could see at least six or seven uh, on that schedule right now. Um, but we'll have to see how these new coaches come through for us, how these new players come through for us. Um, that obviously might change my, you know, my, my, my prediction might change as uh, we, as we see through the first few games, but good test right away um, with, with UNC. And uh, I'm really excited to see what Brosmer can do. I really am. Yeah, man. I mean, we talk about next season and I think a lot of it is going to be on the arm of Max Brosmer. Mm -hmm. And I think he's a special player. I'm in love with his film and his pro football focus grades. If he's the guy that I think he is, I think this Minnesota offense has the potential to be a 2019 level efficient, high scoring offense. Yeah. And I may be speaking with Maroon 
and gold color glasses on here, but I don't think that Minnesota is going to be a bottom dweller of the Big Ten next year. I'm not saying they're going to be amazing, but I wouldn't put them below somewhere in the middle. I I think they... I think they're going to finish a lot more, a lot better than what most people are projecting them to. Obviously, I know it's way too early, but that's, you know, I think they're going to do much better than, than expected. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for rocking with us. I want to thank all our, John, do we want to thank all our contributors yes, again? Yes, we would love to thank uh, Farmer R7 at 89 Windy City for the Washington Huskies. We'd also love to thank the official University of Nebraska Uber driver at Neb Hype Man, Patrick Connor at Patrick Connor, Patrick underscore Connor, and at Peter uh, Meister and for Nebraska. And for the Golden Gophers, obviously, we'd love to thank Golden Goldman H. Gopher at Goldie's Burner and Dylan at Soda Sports Fan 1. And if you want to find us, we live for Saturday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Podcast Addict. You can find us on Twitter at We Live for B1G Sat. You can find Mike here at Alibaba26. You can find me at Norwegian Gopher. You can also email us with any questions, things you want to hear about, talk about, comments, criticisms, you name it, um, at We Live for Saturday, B1G at gmail.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, we will be back next week with another episode where we'll talk current events and then review three more Big Ten teams. We're still looking for contributors. So if you're interested in helping us out with fan expertise, hit us up. And John, anything you want to say to the people before we get out of here? Enjoy your week, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. See you all soon. Take care, everybody.